Welcome back to a podcast greater than yourself, season two. I'm John Barleycorn. And I am Fred. And once again, this is season two of Podcast Greater Than Yourself, our series called Clear Cut Directions, where each episode a speaker takes you through the clear cut directions for a specific step or steps right out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. So yeah, enjoy enjoy this episode. And uh, as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on all the podcasts that are coming out. Reach out to us at podcastgreaterthanyourself at gmail.com. Yeah, or or hit us up on Instagram at podcastgreaterthanyourself or at dr underscore silkworth. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the episode. Every, every time I worked with a new person, every time that I get an opportunity to talk with somebody, uh, like for the first time, if, if I'm sitting down with them in person or over zoom, or even if I'm on the phone, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the doctor's opinion. I might not always say this is the doctor's opinion and this is what page it's on, but I am always going to end up talking about the doctor's opinion because there's, there's like important shit. There's a lot of important shit in here. Um, the doctor's opinion is part is it's before page one in the big book, which always threw me off. Like I've never before read anything with Roman numerals on it of my own volition. And I, I would have missed it. I would have absolutely missed it because it's like pages. If you're in the fourth edition, it starts on Roman numeral 25. Um, so it's easy to miss, but it's also super important. What it is, is um, it's really, it's two letters from this guy, this doctor named Dr. Silkworth, who at the time that this was written in the thirties was like a world renowned physician who a specialist in the field of what I guess you would call addiction, right? Um, Alcoholism. He, he helped run a a renowned treatment center in New York town's hospital where Bill Wilson um, went at least once, I think a couple times and where ultimately Bill sort of, um, had this inspiration to start working on this program that we all know as Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so a few important things about it. Right off the bat, on Roman numeral 25, the first little letter that the doctor wrote, it's a lot shorter. There, there's two letters. The first one is short. Um, he says about alcoholics, he says on 25, um, he attended a patient, though he had been a competent businessman, uh, he had come to regard this kind of person as hopeless, right? At the time, the thing that you have to remember is that at the time this book was written, that alcoholism was literally hopeless. If you were an alcoholic the way that Bill Wilson was an alcoholic or the way that I'm an alcoholic, you were going to die because there was just no hope. They didn't know what to do with you. Um, the next paragraph says basically um, this person developed certain ideas and had, you know, he had some sort of rehabilitation and he appears to have recovered, right? He, he seems better. He's recovered from this hopeless condition. And the next paragraph says, um, these facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. So it's just like the first page, the important things is basically you're fucked. This guy appears to have been cured, recovered, and this sort of a change 
appears to be happening rapidly, right? These are all fantastic. These are fantastic things. This is good news for me, right? Right off the bat, those three things, um, very important. The rest of the doctor's opinion is like this wonderful treatise about alcoholism. It like, it, it, it clears up a ton of misconceptions about what the general public think an alcoholic is or is not. And it explains for us in detail, you know, the, the manifestations of alcoholism or like what it means to be an alcoholic in a super helpful way. They say on Roman numeral 26 that, you know, the doctor has this theory that we have an allergy, uh, an allergy to alcohol. And the writers of the big book say like, okay, we're not doctors. We don't know uh, whether or not it's an allergy or not. We don't care for purposes of our discussion. We don't care. You know, the science behind it is irrelevant, but it makes sense. It's a useful analogy. Um, and it makes as much sense to us as anything else. Uh, they kind of go on to explain there's this twofold problem that we have. We have a physical allergy and we have a mental obsession. So, the paragraph on Roman numeral 28, it says, we believe and so suggested a few years ago. If you start at we believe and so suggested a few years ago, and you read the next one, two, three, four, five paragraphs, and, and you think about those kind of carefully, that's like a huge basis of all that we do, right? Like that's a great synopsis of, of alcoholism and the problem and how you need to have a change. So let's just very quickly go through with it. So we believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. The phenomenon of craving, that allergy, is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So what's an, al an allergy? An allergy is an abnormal physical reaction. I get stung by a bee and my throat closes. I eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I go on anaphylactic shock, right? For alcoholics, Dr. Siltworth is suggesting that we take alcohol. We have this abnormal physical reaction whereby this phenomenon of craving develops that never happens in other people. It never happens. It's limited only to the class of alcoholics. Um, and explains that this allergy, the, the physical reaction that happens to me is, I want more alcohol, right? I start drinking alcohol, and I want more. And this, this craving is really strong that I, I won't necessarily be able to stop it, right? So that's thing one. Um, and I'm going to sort of skim through the rest of the next couple paragraphs, but Dr. Siltworth says... Um, this is describing how this phenomenon of craving is super strong, right? Uh, people, their problems pile up on them, become astonishingly difficult to solve. Uh, the other people in an alcoholic's life who love them may try to talk to them about it and say, hey, Joe, you're totally fucked up. You need some help. But, you know, frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The, those messages about how I'm ruining my life are, you know, are not necessarily sufficient because... I have this, there's this really powerful problem, this allergy is part one of that problem that's, you know, beating the shit out of me. So frothy emotional appeal, it's not usually enough. Um, then Dr. Siltworth says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. It, it sounds stupid, like that sounds obvious, like duh, of course, but, you know, I'm not drinking 
35 light beers a day because <laughs> I love the taste of Milwaukee's best ice, right? I'm drinking uh, because I like the effect produced. Um, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks. So we talked a minute ago about the allergy, this, this phenomenon of craving. Once I start drinking, I can't stop. This next part to me is getting into the second part of our twofold problem, which is mental obsession, right? The mental obsession, meaning that when I'm not, when I'm not drinking, when I'm stone cold sober, I'm pissed and sad and uncomfortable and um, I hate it. I hate being sober. Every day sober, every day of my life that was sober just sucked, right? It was unpleasant. Uh, and what uh, on this page, this paragraph, is it, without alcohol, I am, Joe is restless, irritable, and discontented. And when I walk around sober, you know, that's, that's how I feel. Um, anxious, unsettled. I want something I can't have. There's, you know, uncomfortable. Unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks that I see others take with impunity. My friends can drink normally. They seem they have a few drinks and their life doesn't burn to the ground and they're, they're cool. Um, I see them doing that, but every time I try to do that, I black out and, you know, get in a fight or get kicked out or embarrass myself. Um, so I'm walking around sober, restless, irritable, discontent. Um, I see other people drinking. They're having a fine time. I say I'm not going to do it, but I will succumb again to the desire to drink, as so many do. This phenomenon of craving where I start and I can't stop develops, right? The train starts rolling. I've taken my first drink, and now, you know, who the fuck knows when I'm going to stop? I pass through the well-known stages of spree, emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is that's the cycle, right? Restless, irritable, and discontent, pissy. I become so uncomfortable, like I become so uncomfortable that I decide that drinking probably can't be any worse than my actual life, right? Despite evidence to the contrary that when I drink, bad things happen. When I don't drink, bad things seem to happen too, and they are they seem more uncomfortable. So, you know, I'm sober and miserable. I become miserable enough that, you know, fuck it, I'm going to drink. I start drinking and I go on a, like a spree, a quote unquote spree or a binge. Um, that lasts a while. And then I eventually emerge remorseful wondering, you know, God, why did I do that? How did that get out of my hands again? How come I can't handle my alcohol like a gentleman? And I create a, I develop a firm resolution not to do that again. Um, I'm not going to do that again. And, what does the doctor say? He says, this is repeated over and over. <laughs> and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope of his recovery. So those past five paragraphs, physical allergy. Once I start, I can't stop drinking. Mental obsession. When I'm not drinking, it becomes so bad that eventually I will start drinking again. Um, but once I start drinking, because I have the allergy, I can't stop. And because I can't stop, uh, you know, my life starts to crumble into pieces and things get really bad, but I can't stay stopped. Right. And that's why he says that this is a, this cycle is repeated over and over again. This is basically, if you're an alcoholic, this was my life. Um, just this pattern of 
I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay, this sucks. I am going to do that. This time will be maybe different. I try it. It don't work. Shit gets bad. Very unpleasant when I do make all sorts of mistakes and burn my life down. Somehow I get sober for a day, maybe because I I scared the shit out of myself because I crashed my car or the people in my life made clear to me that if I got drunk again today, bad things were, you know, they're going to leave or um, check me in somewhere or something bad is going to happen. So I take the day off. <laughs> I take one day off. It's miserable. I hate it. Uh, and eventually I pick back up again. And then the cycle repeats over and over again. Um, that's the problem. That's the vicious cycle. That tells us a lot about what alcoholism is and is not. It is not that I got a DUI. It is not that I went to jail. It is not that my wife left me. Uh, it's that once I start drinking, I can't always stop. And I can't quit drinking and stay quit. The only other important thing I want to say is the paragraph below, the paragraph on page 29, it says, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, that person who was hopeless, that, that Dr. Siltworth was talking about at the beginning, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly, see, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. Just so... If you say that in a meeting now, people are going to look at you and get pissed, right? Uh, people think that that's like blasphemy. It's like her heresy. Um, but what, you know, once a psychic change has occurred, that same homeless person um, finds himself suddenly able to control his desire for alcohol. It doesn't say that he finds himself suddenly able to drink like a gentleman uh, because that's not, that's not on offer. That's not a solution that we're going to offer you. Um, we, we're not... Science doesn't know how to do that. Uh, I can't make you drink like a normal person. But what I can help you to do is show you this process that Dr. Siltworth says will create an entire psychic change where you will suddenly not have a desire for alcohol. That's what we want. That's the solution to this problem. Step one, right? Oh, step one. I want to make a new kids on the block joke. <laughs> I have to. I am powerless over the new the kids on the block joke that's about to come out of my mouth. Like, step one, we can have lots of fun. Pretty sure that's the lyric. And I love thinking of that and realizing that step one in Alcoholics Anonymous is the complete opposite of step one in new kids on the block land. Um, it is not fun. It is not fun. It is brutal. It is exhausting. It is brutal. And there's two ways to look at step one. You know, there's looking at step one when you're in it, like when you're in it and you're first introduced to it and it's that first, you know, conversation with a recovered alcoholic or, you know, you've been bouncing around for ages or maybe you've been in and out of AA or maybe, you know, you've just shown up on day one, whatever it is, step one in that palace over alcohol, life is unmanageable. You know, just being stuck in that completely. It is it is a form, it is torture. It is. So there's no lessening that. It is that cruelty, that horribleness. It's that fair enough. We learn that it's self-imposed. <laughs> we learn that a lot of our problems are our own making, but we have this grip. We have this grip over, I don't understand what's happening. And when we're in it, it is so confusing unless you know what's happening. It is so confusing. We don't make sense to ourselves, let alone to anyone else. 
And then there's step one, looking back over it where it makes perfect sense. Because for me, you know, as a recovered alcoholic, we've been through these steps. We've been taken through them and we, well, I say we've been through them. We work them. We work these steps. We live them. And now it's our job to like show other people them and let them have their experience with working these steps too, you know, living them, walking them day to day. And so there's two very different perspectives on it. And as a recovered alcoholic today, my life is completely different to what it was like when I was in that step one overwhelm. Just that, oh man, that just horrible, heavy exhaustion, the shame, the confusion, you know, that, that shame is so heavy at that point because I'm convinced it's my fault. I'm convinced it's my fault and I'm irredeemable and I'm convinced that I've done everything. You know, and I know my experience in step one was that I'd been around AA for a few years. I'd been in a bunch of 12 steps. Like I'd been in a bunch of different programs. I'd had sponsors. I dabbled in doing versions of the steps. I'd never cracked the book. I'd never cracked the book, but I had plenty of other, you know, um, worksheets and conversations and coffees and well-meaning people trying to help me and meetings and listening to stories and identifying and then not understanding why I can't get it, not understanding why calling someone isn't helping me, you know, not understanding why I can't get out of this trap and why, you know, why do I keep going back? And I could get a few months up sometimes, you know, like I had about two years before I started working with a big book sponsor, before I was shown an actual solution. And I was in and out of rehab, you know, I was doing a lot of, psych, you know, psychiatric appointments, therapy, just that endless parade of like trying to find a solution for something, you know, that I knew there was something wrong with me and I was on the hunt. And by the time I met the woman who would become my sponsor, who would show me the steps the first time and would introduce me to this new way of living, you know, who had that first conversation, she was armed with facts about herself. She knew about herself as an alcoholic. She made perfect sense to her, you know, to her. She made perfect sense. And today I make perfect sense to me as an alcoholic because I know what I got. I know about this spiritual illness. I know about the physical, the mental, all those different parts. But when you're in that step one moment, you, you don't know it. You don't know it. All you know is that, why can't I get this? You know, and a lot of well-meaning people in AA who are maybe problem drinkers or heavy drinkers or emotional drinkers, and when they stopped drinking, life got a lot better. So for them, meetings and gratitude lists and going out to dinner really helped them. It plugged them into a community and they feel better. And they think, I want, to I want to pass this on. I'm excited about this and I want to pass this on to the people and I want to help them too. And the book just, you know, describes us as, you know, some of us as real alcoholics. And, you know, I mean, obviously there's a hierarchy implication in that, which isn't always true. We just have a different thing. We don't have problem drinking. We don't have heavy drinking. We have alcoholism. You know, we have that spiritual malady. And I don't make sense because I can't stop when I start. I can't stay stopped. It makes no sense. There's no power in my life over like controlling that drinking. And for me, like it wasn't every day. I wasn't one of those heavy drinkers that just went at it hard. But when I did, it was brutal. It was brutal. And I could go times without it. I could go some weeks sometimes. I could go to, you know, weeks to months. And so hearing people talking about their war stories and how they were, you know, all the worst, most dramatic war stories about you know, the way they drank didn't always resonate with me. But the stories about how they felt and that powerlessness and the confusion was like, yeah, I don't get it. Why can't I can't get my shit together. I don't get it. And I had so much confusion and shame about that. And I'd been in so many different like life versions of help. And so by the time I arrived and was, you know, a woman introduced herself to me 
who had been through the steps and who's like talking to me about the way she was as an alcoholic, I listened. And today, like when we talk to people, I, I love that our book has a whole chapter called Working With Others. It has a whole chapter called A Vision For You, which is all about working with others. Like how cool is that? That's God's vision for me. And then it has all these stories and anecdotes riddled throughout about helping people, about the practical stories about how they were helped. And no one was ever helped by being dragged along to a meeting. You know, none of these first 100 are telling stories about you just got to like lecture them and you got to get that book out and you got to point your ruler at them. And I don't know where a ruler came from, but you got to, you know, you got to... <laughs> You got to whip them into shape. You got to, you know, get get them, you know, get them scared about their condition so that they're, you know, scared into submission. Or you've got to get them caring about their kids so much that they have to do this. Like that's not the solution for us. You know, we need to present this as a, a, I'm a recovered alcoholic and this worked for me, and I've been plugged into this power and I didn't understand it, but I did it, and my life is really different today. And when I meet somebody. I love following the guidance that is laid out and listening. You know, it talks about, you know, who knows what that person needs that I meet. I'm, I'm talking to a fellow human in that moment. And I don't know, maybe they're an alcoholic. Maybe they're a problem drinker. Maybe another solution will help them. Maybe they're not ready. Maybe they're not going to make it. Or maybe they're going to jump in straight away. I don't know. I can't have an agenda in that. All I know is that I can listen and maybe plant a seed for later. And I know my experience has been I've had some women call me out of nowhere. You know, apparently I sponsored them <laughs> once or apparently I met them. I don't always remember, but I get that call or that text and sometimes they show up for a little bit, sometimes they stay and, and you know, do the actual work behind the steps. But my goal is to make a friend, you know, to say, hey, you know, you make sense. You may, if you're an alcoholic like me, and if what I'm saying to you resonates with you, because when you talk, I hear me in you. I hear me in you. You make so much sense to me. And I keep saying that. I keep saying you make sense because for me, that was that was the moment I, I burst into tears when I was reading the book. Actually, no, I burst into tears afterwards in the privacy of my home because I didn't want to burst into tears in public. <laughs> I burst into tears when I realized, oh my God, there are other people like me. There are other people who think like this. And this is what God wants for us. You know, this is what the power is setting me up to do. And isn't that magical and amazing that I get to help versions of me? Because <laughs> this is where I was. It doesn't make sense that I'm here today. It doesn't make sense. My threshold for what I would have considered success back then was that I just didn't want, I wanted to wake up and not have those feelings of death on me. I just wanted to be done. That was, if I could just get rid of that, I would have been thrilled. I would have been a happy customer. And to look on my life now and to realize what God has done for me that I could not do for myself and what I realize that I'm part of something. You know, I have breath in my body today and I have relief about living. Like I really do. And I have a beautiful little life, but I don't forget. You know, I don't forget. I get to carry that with me. I get to carry that pain, that shame, that humiliation. You know, the stories that I've got that when I tell my sister, she has a look of horror on her face. I've learned not to tell her a lot of my stories. But when I tell another alcoholic, you know, sometimes, you know, parts of the book talk about, you know, sometimes we tell them our funny stories or our ridiculous stories or our horrible stories. And it's following that intuition in the moment and saying to God, God, how can I help this person right now? What do they need right now? and thinking about what they need. And rem and because I don't forget what it was like, I don't forget how to be helpful to that version of me. Isn't that amazing? 
Like seriously, isn't that amazing? And I love, you know, what I was saying before about randomly getting messages and calls from women that I met ages ago. I have made a recent mental note. I can't change my phone number ever. Because <laughs> I love the idea of, God willing, I make it 20, 30 years into this thing. I want someone to call me that met me last week. You know, I really, I love that that could possibly happen. Who knows? I don't know. Everyone's on their own path and they get to decide. None of us can force anyone along for this, but I get to be kind and I get to share the horrors of my pain that I was so deeply ashamed of that like today I wear it with, not with honor. I was about to say with honor. Like, that's a weirdo thing to say. Like, you know, I, I wear it with relief because it's helpful. It's helpful. It, con it connects me into somebody that I can help. God gives me a little job in someone's life, a little role, a little moment makes them feel less alone, gives them a bit of hope and maybe might change their life completely. So I'm just going to talk about, you know, some things that I do with a sponsee when we're on step one. When I meet with a new guy and someone asks me to sponsor them or someone wants to go through the steps or even someone who's just concerned about their drinking and trying to figure out if they're an alcoholic or not. You know, I do believe it's my duty to, when a newcomer walks in the door of AA, uh, it's, it's my duty to help them understand what an alcoholic is and, and to qualify them as an alcoholic. I don't just say, you know, well, keep coming back. If, if you're in the meeting, then you're in the right place and you're probably an alcoholic because I hear that all the time and that's just simply not not true and it wasn't helpful to me so i'm not gonna if it wasn't helpful to me when people said that then i'm not gonna you know carry that on and, and say it to other people when i when i know it's not helpful you know I, I sit down with people and we look at the book and i describe my experience um so with sitting down with a sponsee who wants to work the steps i really i start on page 60 because i like to give them an idea of what what it is we'll be doing um because there's so much, you know, AA is so big and it's been around for so long and there's different traditions and different sponsorship, you know, families or norms. or uh, So I really like to sit down and kind of start with a discussion of what we'll be doing in this relationship of, of a sponsor and a sponsee. Um, and they start on page 60. Um, in the middle of the page there, you know, we hear, we hear this in a lot of meetings. They read how it works a lot in meetings, um, but it's, it's so important. Um, it says our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. So essentially, up until this page in the book, they have been trying to convince you of these three ideas that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, and that God could and would if he were sought. So, so you know, the description of the alcoholic and, you know, more about alcoholism, there is a solution, the doctor's opinion. Um, all of these chapters are trying to convince you of these three ideas. A and B are step one, and C is step two, essentially. Because right below that, the line says, being convinced, we are at step three. I'm alcoholic. That I I'm, I'm, can't control the amount that I drink, and I can't choose whether I pick up the drink or not. 
so therefore I, I can't I can't manage it. I can't I need a new manager. That probably no human power can relieve our alcoholism, you know. Um that self knowledge won't fix me, the rehab won't fix me, the girl won't fix me, the car won't fix me, the money won't fix me. No no amount of human power or my own willpower or other people or dependence on people or dependence on meetings. Meetings are human power. I can't depend on them. You know, look at this. We're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, for a while, meetings were shut down. We got some meetings on Zoom, but there were a lot of people whose sobriety completely depended upon in-person meetings, and a lot of them are really struggling right now. And so this idea is that no human power can be relied upon and see that, that, you know, we haven't gone over that yet. But uh, I'll leave that to whoever's talking about step two. <laughs> um, but A and B should be covered at this point. Um, through describing my story and some of these passages in the book, my uh, if a sponsee is a real alcoholic, and then they should be convinced of A and B. And if they're not... Um, I'll read some other stuff, but but again, I don't the and and working with others, it talks about you know we're not here to persuade people into staying sober. That's not my job. I'm laying a kit of spiritual tools to people who want to stay sober, who have found that they're unable to do it on their own. Um, and if they're not anywhere close to that understanding, you know, I'm not going to try to convince them. You know, I'm not a teetotaler. Like I don't. <laughs> I'm not trying to convince anybody that, you know, drinking, I liked drinking. So why would I try to convince somebody that they shouldn't be drinking? You know, my, the idea here is to say, here, look, this is what, this is what powerlessness looks like. Control and choice. If you can't choose whether you drink or not, then you're probably fucked and that no human power is going to fix you. Um, and so that you need to find a power that's, you know, obviously bigger than you because you haven't been able, the evidence has shown that you haven't been able to do it. And if you can admit that, then you've worked step one. Uh, no homework required. So if you are convinced of A, B, and C, then you are at step three. So this is what I show my sponsees. You know, this is what we're going to be talking about today when we meet up to talk. Uh, and we're talking about steps one and two is uh, these three pertinent ideas and what the book says about these three pertinent ideas. And as soon the moment that they are convinced of these three ideas, they understand what these ideas mean and they can tell me what they mean and that they say that they're convinced of them, then we are at step three. You know, there's no homework assignments required or, um, you know, anything that, you know, no pen to paper or any, there's, no, there's none of that in the book. And, and that's why, and the reason why is because Steps one uh, and two, well, step one specifically, uh, we don't work in Alcoholics Anonymous. Step, step one, the work we were doing was out when we were drinking. Um, it's already happened. So what we're doing is we're, we're analyzing our past and we're, we're admitting, you know, is, is, this my, is this the experience I've had or not? And if I can admit that, then that is step one. Um, you know, I don't need to do work to convince myself in AA of step one. It's either my experience of my past lines up with it or it doesn't. So so how do we do this exactly? Do I, I've had sponsors that, you know, read the entire book with me. If I've heard, I see things like that. People meet up, they read the book. I've seen, um, 
you know, of course, like I mentioned, homework assignments or, you know, lists of powerlessness, unmanageability, and, and all these things. And, you know, if you go, get a room of 100 people together in AA, they'll probably all have a different opinion on um, how they work step one or how they come to this conclusion. But, uh, but the book doesn't really say any of that, you know, the... You know, it doesn't ask us to even sit down and read the book with our with our sponsees because, uh, you know, it makes perfect sense. If we're powerless, then we need a solution. We need a power, or else we're not going to stay sober. So if we're if we're just meeting up and reading a book, um, how you know how long is that going to take? How powerless is this person? You know, it's it. It just seems so clear to me that I need a solution as soon as possible, and I love the the line, uh, you know, that some people say in AA that this is, uh, you know, that it's a race, and it's a race against the first drink. So, uh, my, you know, my conviction here, or my philosophy, or whatever you want to call it, is that I need to get this person if they're if they are powerless, and I need them to understand what that means as soon as possible. And the moment they understand that, I need to get them into the work. And anything other than that could potentially be a waste of time, and it could be deadly if they're actually powerless. Um, so I really don't think you can work the steps too quickly. I do think you can work the steps too slowly. Step one's really the, um, you know, what am I doing here step? Do I need to be here? Am I in the right place? Uh, am I the person that step one is even aimed at? Am I the person who the steps are built for? Am I the person who is qualified to be taking up a seat in a meeting of AA? Um, and my goal as a sponsor or as someone who's working with a sponsee who's about to, you know, become a sponsor for the first time or just, you know, convey step one directions to someone else uh, would be to really focus on the immediacy of step work beginning right when I start talking with somebody. Uh, that could be as simple as like, Chapter 7 talks about when we approach someone, a new person, and we're trying to feel them out. We're trying to find out about them. You know, basically what I'm doing is I'm approaching someone at a meeting and I'm like, I'll usually remember something that they said and their name. Um, hey, Dale, <laughs> really liked the thing you said about... Uh, hating your roommate and sober living. Gosh, I can super relate, <laughs> you know, something like that. Um, whatever kind of in, um, I usually listen for people who sound like they have some sort of desperation in what they're saying, because as the book tells us a few times, that's going to be key in, um, looking at the hopelessness and futility that step one asks us, if we're experiencing, I feel like it's a lot easier with people who aren't putting on an act or at least outwardly portraying a vibe of 
everything's great. I'm doing well. Um, you know, feel better, work better. Everything's great kind of vibe in a meeting because what we're going to be looking at in step one is absolute defeat. You know, so a lot of the times when I work with someone who has already been through like a treatment, a definitely long-term treatment um, that is not 12-step based, that doesn't emphasize the 12 steps, and um, who's been going to a lot of meetings and doing a lot of fellowship stuff, the shell that needs to be cracked in order to look at what the big book is really talking about with step one is a lot thicker and there's a lot more involved in that uh, because a lot of these people are really being taught by inpatient and outpatient uh, therapy, treatment, whatever, that if they can just sort out their life and they can just manage things and you know keep their life easy and happy enough that they will be then in a position where they can either not drink not use drugs or they will at least be in a position where then they can start the steps and so my very purpose with approaching anyone whether it's in Zoom, in the chat, or when I speak in a Zoom meeting and I offer sponsorship, or at an in-person meeting when I walk right up to someone, or if somebody gives me a friend's number and says, hey, this guy's struggling, why don't you give him a call? Um, in any of that, my number one purpose is to help this person determine whether they are the person in step one. So, you know, when we look at the book, the recovery portion of the book, about the first third of it, it's all about step one. It's all about who is this person that step one's talking about. And it boils down to these two ideas, control and choice. Almost exclusively, up until page 23, it's talking about a physical reaction to alcohol that's abnormal. It's talking about this phenomenon of craving. It's talking about, you know, what happens when I put booze in my body? Do I react in a way that shows any semblance of control? You know, do I ever drink more than I intended? Do I ever go to extremes I had no intention of going to? Um, Dr. Silkworth talks about this being something that never happens with average temperate drinkers. So this is a piece that's usually really easy to go over with somebody. And where it gets trickier, and I feel a lot of this comes from the stuff that we hear in meetings um, and other places, it's where page 23 introduces this idea of the main problem centering in the mind rather than in the body. So, it, uh, so from 20 to 23, it's talking about how a real alcoholic reacts to alcohol, doing crazy things, uh, drinking beyond his control, um, being a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, this dude might have all kinds of stuff going for him, but uh, once he drinks, you know, his temperament resembles his normal self very little. He's not in control of himself, let alone 
the quantity of alcohol he takes. And it also goes to lengths to explain that, you know, like this isn't a comprehensive, you know, diagnostic portraiture of like every single type of alcoholic. It's just a broad stroke of the physical phenomena of craving, the abnormal reaction that joins every chronic alcoholic together. And so after they break down a bunch of stories about that, what it says in 23 is these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. So it's a moot point. If I can just put down the booze, put the plug in the jug, if I can just not drink no matter what, then this book stops on page 23. I'm done. I do not qualify as an alcoholic, according to the book Alcoholics Anonymous. It goes on, therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really makes sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. So this is the insanity that step two talks about. If I can muster up the gumption to just not drink no matter what, I don't have that insanity. I.e. step two isn't talking about me. I.e. the rest of the steps do not offer the solution I need. If my only issue is I have a physical abnormal reaction to alcohol that manifests in me not being able to physically control how much I drink once I start, my solution is to stop drinking and that's where my solution ends. The rest of the program that's going to be discussed in the rest of these um, step series discussions is going to go into you know, great detail on how we execute the directions in the book for the rest of the steps. But until I've reached a place where I am completely convinced that my physical abnormal reaction to alcohol is a death sentence strictly because I have a mind coupled with that that will always take me back to the first drink against my will, no matter what, eventually it's going to happen, then I will not have the compelling experience that propels me through the rest of the work, which as page 25 tells us, you know, none of these people who originated this program wanted to do, you know, no, no one comes into this thing wanting to do this stuff. You don't wake up hungover thinking like, you know, today I will not put the only thing I know that solves my internal discomfort into my body. And instead I will get up and think exclusively of others and how I may help meet their needs. I'll make restitutions for the harms I've done. I'll admit all my defects to someone and you know, on and on. You, you know, you don't wake up thinking that you wake up thinking, I really, really don't want to drink today. I don't want to do this again today. And then you go back and you do it again. You set off the physical phenomenon of craving. You go through a spree on and on. So if I haven't found myself there at a place where I know I'm going to continue to pick up a drink, even when I don't want to, then not only 
what is it I'm trying to get out of the rest of the steps, but what is the compelling force that's going to push me through that difficult work of completing the rest of the steps? All right. So whenever I am taking a new person through step one, and whenever I myself was taken through step one, um, I was told that the book from the doctor's opinion all the way through page 43 uh, is where I find all of the information I need to make that step one decision. Am I going to concede to my innermost self that I'm an alcoholic and that my problem is hopeless? Uh, so that's a lot. That's a huge chunk of the book. That's the first one third of the book. And, um, and, and that's where I get all this information. Uh, but on page 44, there's uh, the first paragraph in page 44 does this really, really good job of tying into a neat little bow, um, and, and summarizing the, the first 43 pages. And it gives me these two statements called the qualifying statements. And this is actually the very first place that my first sponsor took me to um, because I was questioning whether or not I really needed to be there. And she told me that if I could check one or both of these things off, then I was probably in the right place. And that this, uh, this program, if I, if I chose to uh, commit myself to it, um, could, could solve my problem. So I'm going to go ahead and read that paragraph really briefly. It says, in the preceding chapters, you've learned something of alcoholism. We hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. And here's my two qualifying statements. If, when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, or if, when drinking, you have little control over the amount that you take, you are probably alcoholic. If that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. So, Whenever I first went through this and whenever I take people through this for the first time, this is generally where I bring them first. And, and I ask them those two questions. And it's not for me to answer as a sponsor. It's for them to consider. Um, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, check for me. Or if when drinking, you have little control of the, over the amount that you take, also check for me. Um, so I'm probably an alcoholic. And... Um, I think the other thing that's important to consider is what we mean when we say powerless. Uh, so the first step is that I'm admitting that I'm powerless over alcohol and that my life has become unmanageable. So whenever I'm considering my powerlessness over alcohol, I need to consider two different aspects. Um, and that can be covered in those, in those two qualifying statements as well. And the first one gets covered uh, in the doctor's opinion. So the first way that I'm powerless over alcohol is physically. If I'm a real alcoholic, I react totally differently to alcohol than normal drinkers when I put it in my body. Uh, most normal people can get to like a, a spot, like a like a, I, I, like the buzz spot. I don't know. I've, I've heard normal people describe the way they drink and like the mark that they're going for. And it just doesn't make sense to me, but I've heard 
that they can do this successfully. Uh, but here's what is here's what happens for me, and I'm going to be reading from the doctor's opinion where they where they describe um, my physical reaction to alcohol and the way that I am physically powerless over alcohol when I put it in my body. And that's going to be on Roman numeral pages. Oh, 28 X X V I I I. And I'm going to read that first paragraph it says, we believe we doctors believe. And so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol in these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. So that's what my allergy is. Uh, it's not necessarily that I break out in the hives. It's not necessarily that my tongue swells up and I got to get a shot or what is it? Uh, oh, what's that thing called? Oh, the EpiPen. It's not that I need to carry around one of those. It's that I have a phenomenon of craving that happens whenever I drink alcohol. So as soon as I, as soon as I take that first drink, I get this phenomenon of craving where I need to drink, uh, you know, I, I feel the need to consume more and more and more. I can't stop where normal people would stop. Um, I, I have this, this allergy that tells me I have to keep going. And that allergy is what takes me through this cycle of a spree that the doctor also covers really, really well in the doctor's opinion. Um, so I rack up these consequences on the spree and, and, um, then I emerge remorseful. And so whenever I, whenever I take the first drink, I experience the allergy. I go on the spree, all this crazy bad stuff happens to me on the spree. Um, and then, you know, I, I come out of it and I say, that was horrible. I never, ever, ever want to do that again. And that's where the second part of my powerlessness over alcohol comes into play. Uh, so there's a, my favorite, I say that about everything. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite chapters in the book is more about alcoholism. And it does a really, really solid job of describing to me the second way I'm powerless over alcohol, which is that I have this obsession. I have this insanity around alcohol that causes me to take that first drink and experience that allergy and experience that spree over and over and over again, no matter how much I want to stop. Um, and this is the most, it calls it the, the, this is the baffling feature of this illness that I've got. Right. Um, so, so even though I, I, I can know all I, I can know all I want about this allergy, but I'm still going to experience it. Um, because I've got this insanity, this obsession that continues to take me back to the first drink and more about alcoholism, um, takes me through a few really, really great examples. What my sponsor refers to as relapse autopsies. Um, and it takes us through the experiences of a few different alcoholics, uh, and what the insanity looks like. So I'm going to be reading the book's definition of this insanity around alcohol, the second way that I'm powerless over alcohol. And I'm going to be reading that from the top of page 37. 
Uh, so the book at this point has just given us the story of this guy that they called Jim, um, who experiences the insanity, uh, and he ends up thinking that whiskey can't hurt him if he just puts it in milk. Um, so let's start at the very top of this page. It says, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, so whatever, whatever Webster's Dictionary says, whatever Einstein says the definition of insanity is, we're not worried about those definitions. Here is our definition of insanity as it pertains to my alcoholism. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight around alcohol be called anything else? Uh, you may think that this is an extreme case. So, you know, I've just read this, this story about this guy who knew he couldn't drink, who knew he had a problem with drinking and still drank anyway. Um, so I may think that that's kind of extreme. But it says, to us, it's not far-fetched, for this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We've sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Um, and so whenever I'm taking a new person through step one, I'm just laying out what the book is telling me about my disease. Um, and, and, you know, and I can, I can give examples of that from my own life. Um, I would come out of sprees and I would say that was, that was the worst experience of my life. I can't believe I cheated on my boyfriend. I never want to do that again. And then three days later, some insanely trivial excuse for drinking would win out and I would start it all over again. Um, and I think really the best way, um, to wrap all of that up, um, about my powerlessness. So I'm powerless physically. Once I start drinking, I'm, I'm not sure I, I can't hit my target. I'm not sure where I'm going to stop. And then I'm powerless, um, mentally because no matter how badly I want to quit, I'm always going to have this insane idea that wins out and takes me back to the first drink. I'm not going to be able to think the drink through. Um, I'm not always going to be able to be on guard against alcoholism. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I reason through all of this and I look at all of this evidence that the first 43 pages gives me about my disease, I'm able to make this decision. Am I powerless over alcohol or am I not? Am I alcoholic or am I not? And throughout the book, there are some really, really, really great, um, descriptions that alcoholics give about how they felt at their first step. Um, on page 42, our friend Fred, um, says, I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. Um, in Bill's story, he describes his first step as feeling like alcohol was my master. Um, in the doctor's opinion, he describes two different men who come to the, come to the realization that their situation is hopeless. There's, there's instances all over these first 43 pages of alcoholics coming 
to take their first step. And, and, you know, when I go through this myself or when I take another person through this, this, that's where I get all my information. Um, and, and that's when I become armed with all the knowledge necessary, um, to concede to my innermost self that yes, I am an alcoholic. Uh, and so I hope that makes sense. And I hope some people got some good information out of that. Um, I know it's kind of all over the place, but that's what I got. Yes, I'm just going to talk a little bit about my uh, step one experience. Um, so in step one, we admit to our uh, innermost selves that we are, um, uh, you know, true alcoholics. And uh, I didn't really understand what that meant uh, in, until I really got into the book uh, with a good sponsor and, and really explained kind of what AA's take on alcoholism um, really is. Um, and I mean, part of that, part of that knowledge of the thing that I suffer from is this uh, emphasis on powerlessness where I can wish, um, to be sober all I want. Um, I can want it more than anything in the world. But the thing is, is I just, I'm, I can't bring about that result, uh, no matter how hard I try. And that's the really kind of baffling thing about, uh, this disease and, and about step one, because for a long time when I was drinking and using, like I was having a lot of fun, obviously. Um, and then I always thought if it became a problem and I wanted to stop, well then, you know, then I could stop right now. It's just, I don't really want to stop. Like, you know, in my heart of hearts, like, yeah, I can recognize, you know, some stuff starting to go wrong, but like, I don't really want to stop. And I always sort of, you know, contented myself with the thought that if I ever get to a point when I really want to stop, I'll be able to. Um, unfortunately, uh, this weird line was crossed. I don't know if it was ever the, like, I don't know if it was the case that ever since I picked up, you know, I could have never put it down. Um, I don't, so I don't know if that's true. Um, it certainly felt like I could have stopped, uh, before things got, you know, uh, progressively worse, but at a certain point, like I definitely crossed a line, um, where, I wanted to be sober more than anything in the entire world. Uh, I hated, um, I hated like how sad my life was. I hated the pain I was causing to my friends and family. Um, I had like moments of sobriety where I'd go and like dry up by a pool in, in California and like get like physically abstinent from alcohol and, and, and drugs and like enjoy that. And like, okay, I, I want to be sober. I don't, I, I don't want to uh, keep doing this. And then I uh, just found that I couldn't stop. And it was, it was the most terrifying thing. And, and so reading through page 30 and 31 to kind of get prepared for this talk, I was reading through and, and, and what jumped out at me uh, this time reading through is uh, this passage here on 30. So all of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. So I, I just want to, like this jumped out at me, I think, because like, I just want to get that point across that 
step one was so hard for me to understand because like it says, all of us felt at times that we were regaining control. And in my experience with using and drinking was like, okay, like something, you know, big has come up. Um, I want to put this down. Um, I feel like maybe I'm developing a, a habit and it's a problem in my life. And, and I, I'm going to prove that I'm not an alcoholic or an addict. And so just like with sheer will and determination, I, I put some days together, right? I'd go, I'd go, you know, one, two, three, four, six days and, you know, fighting those temptations and those urges to go and pick up and I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And I would like fight it and fight it and fight it. And I would make it like six days. And I'd be like, look, see, I'm not an alcoholic because I have these periods of control, right? But what the book says is, look, all of us are going to feel this way at times. All of us are going to feel that we were regaining control. But here's the kicker. Here's the punchline is that such intervals, usually brief, true, (laughs) were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. So, like, what that means is, like, this disease has uh, a delusion built into it, right? Like, if it was just so obvious to me that I was powerless and a complete slave and I had no control, I think this, it would be easier to admit I'm an alcoholic or a drug addict, but this disease has this uh, aspect where it clouds us um, from the truth about ourselves. And so built into this kind of disease, I think is like uh, these times, at least in my experience, when I can resist the temptation and I can fight it. Right, but that sort of feeds into the delusion, and it and it and it ignores the fact that I always go back to it. That eventually, uh, I always go back, and every time I do, it's worse than when it was where I left off. And eventually, what the big book promises is going to lead to this state of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, and that is when my step one experience really started to take shape and make sense. Was um, just the just the amount of shame I felt in not being able to uh, control myself and not being able to put this down when I when I recognized this was no longer fun. I didn't want to live this way. I, I knew that there was a better. I knew I would have a better life, and I wanted that life, and I couldn't live up to it. I would always go back, and I and every time I always go back. I. Why? Why did I go back? And I would just, and I would just feel so ashamed and so um, demoralized and feel terrible about myself. Um, and I just, it, I don't know. It's important to, to. Uh, I think it's just important to stress how hard it might be to come to really understand step one, and it's this, um, this, this inability over you know a considerable period of time where eventually I'll go back. And every time I do, it's worse. And I just don't have the, the power to stay stopped. You hear that a lot. You know, I think it's great. It's like, yeah, I could stop, but I just couldn't stay stopped. And, and I think you know, that, was definitely, um, that was definitely my experience. And I've been thinking recently, um, just in my own uh, life and recovery and message, is like, why didn't I get the message the first time I came around to the rooms? You know, because I had been to treatment, exposed to AA a number of times, right? It's like, why didn't I get it when I was first introduced? And what I've, like, settled in on now, for now, I mean, my understanding is constantly changing and evolving, um, 
but I think what it really is, I just did not understand step one. And here's why I say that is because in my mind, I still had power over this thing. I could admit that I had a problem. I could admit that this was not working out and I needed help. And then I would go and I'd be exposed to AA. And I would notice things like, you know, there's people in the room that kind of are like me and there's some pretty girls and some cool guys. And it sounds like some young people can have fun in, in sobriety. And um, that's attractive. So I'm like, okay, maybe this AA thing, you know, is, uh, is going to work. And then some people would say, you know, hey, man, like, uh, it seems like you really have this uh, disease, that you're a real alcoholic. And if that's true of you, you need to grab a sponsor and you need to work the steps or it's, you're not going to last. Right? They can look at my experience. They can look at you know uh, the things I describe. And they say, look, man, if you're an alcoholic, if you're one of us, you can't just hang out in here and drink Red Bulls and go partying you know, uh, uh, and, and be sober and like, have fun. Like, it, it's just not going to work out. And, and that, did, that, mess, did, that didn't sink in because I didn't understand the uh, uh, step one fully. I didn't understand the powerlessness. And so like, looking back at those times, I was like, I still wanted to do it my own way. And the thing about me, the thing about this alcoholic is I'm never, like as long as I still have ideas on how I can control this thing and how I can beat this thing, I'm never, I'm never going to do the steps. I'm never going to turn my life over to God if I still think that I, I can beat this thing. Okay. So looking back, it's like, why didn't it take the first time? Well, it's just because I didn't understand step one. The powerlessness was not beaten into me enough. I didn't grasp it. And then finally... You know, after this merry-go-round of treatment, periods of sobriety and relapse and over and over again, and then wanting to be sober desperately and then just not being able to and feeling that pitiful sense of uh, incomprehensible demoralization, did that step one message start to kind of make sense? And where it really stuck for me, uh, I can can remember the exact meeting I was in. I was in a meeting in Port Townsend, uh, Washington, out there in the Olympic Peninsula, to where I got sober and I was in a treatment center and they would take us into town and we'd go to these meetings in the Alano Club. And there was, this, there was this guy in there and he was talking about the peculiar mental phenomenon. And it talks about this a, few, a, little, you know, a few pages later, I think on 33, that part of this disease that we have is this strange ability to lie to ourselves that um, like I can... Uh, get a little time, I can be enjoying sobriety, I cannot want to be using, and then all of a sudden we'll experience this, uh, what the book also calls a, a strange mental blank spot. And like, what, what, what is that? Like, I think the best way of characterizing it is like, I can want to be sober, and I can understand that being sober is like the best thing for me, and it's like, okay, I want to do that, and I, and I know that's what I need to do. And then for whatever reason, I just don't do it. It's just, it, it, that's, that's the insanity of it. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, and when this gentleman was talking about that, I was like, that is the first time I've ever heard anyone characterize uh, this experience that I have, right? Where like, um, I don't know why I go back. It's either that, it was either like, it's either like, I don't know, I experienced this strange mental blank spot. 
and I, and I go back, um, and I lie to myself and like, somehow I convince myself that like this time is going to be different. The mountain of evidence that I've had to the contrary, I can just like toss it aside through this weird mental thing where I just ignore all of that and think it's a good idea. Right. It was either that or like, I would get so sick of fighting the temptation and the urges just like with my own willpower and just like beating it down and like fight, 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 fight. And I'd get so sick of the fight that I would just like say, fuck it. And just, and just, you know, <laughs> go back to it. Right. But when people were talking about that in the meetings and like, I'm sure people had talked about this before, but like, I, I just wasn't at that point where I was willing to, to hear and understand that as a part of my own reality and experience. But eventually I was at that point where I was ready to hear. And I heard that message of people being honest about this inability to control, uh, themselves want, be, wanting to, you know, stay sober and using against their own willpower. And I was like, Oh shit, I have this thing. This, per- this thing, this person, this guy's describing this powerlessness. I have that like that. I can't, I can't, I cannot come up. I cannot argue my way out of it. I can't deny the fact that I have that thing. And it was at that point where I'm ready now to work the steps. If I, and so like why this is so important is because if people haven't uh, identified with step one, they haven't, haven't identified as a true alcoholic, which means no matter what, they're going to go back to this. They're going to go back to their drug of choice or to alcohol or whatever. If you haven't had that step one experience, at least in my experience, there, there's no reason to do the rest of the steps, right? Like I'm going to do the steps now. Like I'm, I'm going to do this because I understand the nature of my disease. And this is the only, <laughs> this is, this is the only possible uh, thing that, I mean, as far as we know, right, like some book says science, they want to accomplish this. We don't need a spiritual experience to, to uh, be healed from this sort of uh, weird uh, state of being that we're in as alcoholics. But look, like I get it. Like it, 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 it made sense. So now, okay, I'm willing to do the rest of the steps, right? Like that's the pivotal thing is like understanding step one. And so this is why the book spends so much time on step one, right? Uh, so much of the, of the first 164 is dedicated to this process of identification and being like, look, do you identify as a real alcoholic or not? If you don't, like the books, the book, look, we're not teetotalers, right? If you don't identify, our books, like, look, hat, our hats are off to you. You know, you can drink like a gentleman. Great. You know what I mean? What this program is for is for people uh, who can't, <laughs> who have tried every imaginable remedy to control and enjoy their drinking and have failed miserably in every possible uh, way imaginable, every conceivable uh, solution they can think of has failed. This, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is for people like that. It's for people like me who can identify with that. And unfortunately, after understanding the sort of seriousness and drastic uh, nature of step one, there's a program of, uh, of action outlined in the rest of the steps. Um, that uh, provides a sort of miraculous solution to that state. So that is uh, it's my step one experience. Um, it's why it's so important to sit down with a new guy and talk about alcoholism, bust open the doctor's opinion where it you know, characterizes the three-part disease. You know, and this is what we suffer from, right? This is Alcoholics Anonymous understanding of alcoholism. It applies to drug addicts too. Like, do you identify with this with these aspects of the disease, and can you um, admit, uh, or do you need to admit that you have this thing? If you don't, cool, like <laughs> awesome, like 
that's great. Uh, you know, go enjoy your life. Uh, but if you identify it with like, you gotta, you gotta do the rest of the work and it become, and it's like, of course I'm going to do it now. Like I have the, I have the, I got the, I got the problem. I, I want the solution now. And yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's all I got. Thanks so much. was created by recovered alcoholics. All involved in the creation of this podcast are active members of Alcoholics Anonymous who wish to carry the message of our own recovery to those who still suffer. We do not claim to represent Alcoholics Anonymous. All comments are from our own experiences as alcoholics who have recovered by following the directions for the 12 steps found in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Thanks for listening.